Welcome to Ask an Ex-Mormon Therapist. This is your host, Jenny Morrow, and I am excited to be back. It's been a long time since I recorded an episode, um, at least since sometime in October, maybe even beginning of October. So I ended up hosting the first Ask an Ex-Mormon Therapist gathering at the beginning of this month, and it was a fabulous time. So we had a full group and a chance to socialize, get to know each other, and just discuss some of the questions and issues people are facing as they're going through transition or going through any part of the process of questioning Mormonism to how to stay within Mormonism, to how to leave, to how to work within their relationships around it. So it really was a really great night. And I think what we're going to be doing is I'll host a gathering once each quarter So every three months, which means our next one will be in February. I'll keep you all posted, and if you're interested in joining, then you can sign up for the group in February. If you're new to Ask an Ex-Mormon Therapist, the way this works is I take questions from people who are wondering about how to navigate any kind of religious transition or change or religious perspective change, anything like that. And I still have some questions in the queue that I want to answer, Um, a couple of of questions that came through emails that I have not yet answered. So those are still there, and I'm still planning on doing episodes on them. But continue to send in any questions. Sometimes I'm just waiting for timing on things when certain issues come up. Sometimes that's what I want to talk about. So keep your questions coming in, and I will continue to get to them as the timing feels good. So this episode is about some news that came out a few weeks ago now. So it might seem to be a bit behind the time, but I'm really actually excited to do this episode today in regards to the timing of it all. I've been sitting on this episode for the last couple of weeks because this was a big deal. It was a big issue. Um, I actually ended up having a few emergency sessions call in the week it happened. So probably everyone listening already has a pretty good idea of what the handbook policy change is. But if not, and just to get everyone on the same page, I'm going to go ahead and read the policy. And I'm not going to go through different pieces of the policy and look at the different parts of it and delineate delineate out the different arguments. That's, That's not the angle that we're looking at today on this podcast. But it may still be important for everyone to just be on the same page as far as You know, what is this episode even talking about in regards to what policy? So the policy change is for the LDS Policy Handbook 1, and it's on policies on ordinances for children of a parent living in a same-gender relationship. It says, a natural or adopted child of a parent living in a same-gender relationship, whether the couple is married or cohabitating, may not receive a name and a blessing. A natural or adopted child of a parent living in a same-gender relationship, whether the couple is married or cohabitating, may be baptized and confirmed, ordained, or recommended for missionary service only as follows. A mission president or stake president may request approval from the Office of the First Presidency to baptize and confirm, ordain, or recommend missionary service for a child of a parent who has lived or is living in a same-gender relationship when he is satisfied by personal interviews that both of the following requirements are met. Number one, 
the child accepts and is committed to live the teachings and doctrine of the church and specifically disavows the practice of same-gender cohabitation and marriage. Number two, the child is of legal age and does not live with a parent who has lived or currently lives in a same-gender cohabitation relationship or marriage. The other change that has been made in Handbook 1 is under the section of when a disciplinary council may be necessary and when a disciplinary council is mandatory. So in the first section it says when a disciplinary council may be necessary, serious transgression. It includes, but is not limited to, attempted murder, forcible rape, sexual abuse, spouse abuse, intentional serious physical injury of others, adultery, fornication, homosexual relations, especially sexual cohabitation, deliberate abandonment of family responsibilities, and when a disciplinary council is mandatory, apostasy. As used here, apostasy refers to members who, number one, repeatedly act in clear, open, and deliberate public opposition to the church or its leaders. Number two, persist in teaching as church doctrine information that is not church doctrine after they have been corrected by their bishop or a higher authority. Number three, continue to follow the teachings of apostate sects, such as those that advocate plural marriage, after being corrected by their bishop or a higher authority. Number four, are in a same-gender marriage. Number five, formally join another church and advocate its teachings. So that at least gives an outline of what the new policy says. Most of us don't know what the changes are exactly because we don't know what it said before. But prior to this, I don't believe there was anything in regards to children of same-sex couples who are cohabitating or married. So I think that section is all new. And in regards to apostasy, I believe the one that was added was couples in a same-gender marriage. One of the reasons I've decided to talk about this is because, well, it was a big deal. It was a big deal to me. It was a big deal to a lot of other people. But I've also had a lot of clients ask me, why do you think they did it? And I've asked myself the same question many, many times. So a disclaimer about this episode. I'm not exactly sure what happened here. I'm not sure all the reasons why the LDS Church made this move. Um, there's been a lot of different ideas and speculations. The LDS Church themselves has come out and said, this is why we did it. Many people have speculated as to why they did it for a variety of reasons. To be honest, I'm not exactly sure why. In regards to the multitude of surface reasons that might be spoken about. But what I can speak to are some of the patterns of power and control that show up in relationships in general. And this can be helpful for those of us who feel impacted by this decision, no matter how Mormon or not Mormon you are. Understanding how power dynamics work can be really helpful for a few different reasons. First, it can help you and I to take the LDS Church's decision less personally. It can help us to move through the process of forgiveness more completely because it allows us to frame the offender, in this case the LDS Church's behavior, in terms of their own injuries and blind spots. It can also help anyone listening to get a better picture of what to do now for yourself moving forward. So by getting more clear on how this one decision that the LDS Church made fits into the bigger picture of what this relationship between you and they is really about, hopefully you can make a more educated decision about where to go from here, both now in the present and maybe even down the road, a month down the road, six 
six months down the road, six years down the road. You know, hopefully over time, some of the ideas that we talk about today will become more clear in regards to how to manage your relationship with the LDS Church. So the angle that I want to look at this whole decision of the church's new handbook policy through is through the lens of power dynamics in an authoritarian relationship. And power and control mechanisms can be so subtle that they often work below the awareness of both the authoritarian figure as well as the follower or the victim of the authoritarian regulations and rules. So while the LDS church leaders may have some, you know, quote, surface reasons as to their new policy, my sense based on what I've learned and seen in many relationships is that there is a much more subtle and deeper or under the surface reason for a move like this. And that's what I wanted to talk about on today's episode. And I might be correct about some of this. I might be incorrect about some of it. But this is what has come up, come up for me as I've thought about it and based on patterns I've watched in authoritarian relationships in general. So let's talk about authoritarian relationships first. So I'm going to go ahead and paraphrase a definition that came from a website. Um, You can find it. It's www.abuseandrelationships.org. So feel free to go there and you can browse information on different kinds of abuse within relationships. It's kind of an interesting website, actually. Um, So... On that website, they talk about authoritarian style. And what they say about it is that at its most transparent, authoritarian style is simply dictating to others what they will do. So an authoritarian style can also be less obvious. Being an authority in a relationship is a way of disguising personal wishes as principles. First comes an insistent on framing matters of preference or opinion as matters of right and wrong. Second comes the insistence that the authority figures, preferences, and opinions are the right ones, so they're morally correct. Third comes an insistence that the follower, quote, do what is right. This is a particularly effective method against followers that are dedicated to doing what is right, such as those raised in strong faith traditions. So, also with an authoritarian primary leader or leaders, what is right but what is right may change depending on what he, she, or they are feeling. So this can leave the follower feeling somewhat confused or intimidated. So today as I go through this, I'm going to be talking about the authoritarian primary leader or the authoritarian figure as the LDS church. And I'm going to be talking about the, I sometimes use the word victim and I'll kind of explain a little bit later why that's not totally accurate, um, but it sometimes works to understand the situation Um, So I'll be using the word follower or victim to describe those who are following the authoritarian rules and perspectives of the LDS Church. So while situations within an authoritarian relationship can feel very personal, and they are on one level because they affect our very lives, on another level these relationships are simply playing out a bigger pattern that can exist in a variety of situations and is as unpersonal as a virus in the body. The power dynamic is simply playing out its pattern the way it's supposed to. This doesn't mean that these things are unchangeable, but it takes becoming aware of the pattern without shaming it, because remember, if we're shaming something, we can't see the reality very clearly. Okay, We've talked about that in the past. But it takes becoming aware of the pattern 
in order to shift it. So, in, an, in a relationship that includes an authoritarian power dynamic, the authoritarian figure, the leader, the spouse, the parent, employer, or group dictates what is right and wrong. And this kind of dynamic exists within many religious frameworks, including Mormonism. So I've also watched this dynamic play out in couples, friend groups, work relationships, and parent-child relationships. And this episode was actually a little bit hard to do in the sense that as I was going through it, creating an outline, taking some notes, I was having some flashes of my own perpetrations, I guess would be the word, of times where I took on the authoritarian role in a certain relationship and acted in manipulative or controlling ways. So, you know, it was a little painful to go through this just with the realization that, oh, I've done that sometimes. You know, maybe in a different way, maybe to a more mild degree, maybe not. But, oh, you know, we're all susceptible to these power dynamics. And again, rather than shaming ourselves or shaming others, ultimately what helps all of us is just becoming more aware so that we can all start to do our part to change the patterns that we're a part of. Some of the patterns might be where we act as a more authoritarian figure in the dynamic. Other situations might be where we act as a follower or a victim in the power dynamic. You know, the reality is for any of us who've been on one end of the polarity, we've probably been on both ends of the polarity because that's how this stuff works and how it plays out. And it's why those who've been perpetrated on with abuse in any way often become those who then use that same tactic with others. So, you know, it can be hard to look at this, but again, ultimately the reason why we're doing this is so that we can all become more free, more clear, more loving people in this world. That's the hope. So, Often in these situations, the authority figure does believe that their opinions and preferences are moral truths. Because many of us have been raised within the structure of some kind of authoritarian dynamic, many of us also pass this on, like I was talking about, by acting or believing that in another relationship we are the authority or the one authorized to dictate what is right or wrong or how others should or shouldn't be. So the idea of an authority figure is not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes an authority figure is someone who is considered an authority on a certain topic or subject because they may have more information, they may have more learning, knowledge, experience. So again, in this particular dynamic, we're talking not just about an authority figure, but an authoritarian figure. Someone who takes that authority and creates a dynamic where their perspectives, their learning, their knowledge, their ideas are made into a moral right or wrong. And that their way is the, quote, morally right way or the best way. Okay, so in these situations is where we, even after leaving religion, for those that have, um, can unconsciously act out of these power dynamic roles. And when we leave religion, we may take on the role of being the authoritarian figure or the perpetrator, believing that we are now morally superior, speaking as though we know what's right and wrong for the church. Has anyone ever done that? Yeah, raise your hand. Most of us who are in transition or who have left or even who are staying, but believe we have you know, a morally superior perspective now than the church. So we're not going to talk about that yet. We're not going to talk about how the church can change, or how we can change. We'll get to some of that today. But first, let's talk a little bit more about how this dynamic works and how it may be playing out in the church's policy decisions 
regarding gay and lesbian members and their children. So one of the first things that happens when authoritarian power is challenged is that it will stand its ground. It will emphasize why it's wrong and why another, no, it will emphasize why it's correct and why another is wrong. So whether it's in a spousal relationship or a religious group, this is usually the first response when a spouse or religious followers begin to question or doubt or state opinions that are contrary to the personal wishes of the authoritarian figure. It's usually the first response when someone begins to question is for the authoritarian figure to stand their ground. Say, here's why I'm right, here's why you are wrong. If it's a more aggressive or violent authoritarian figure, it will often take a stronger or more violent stance right away. In Mormonism, the current pattern is not to be physically violent, but rather to use spiritual threats of eternal cutoff from God or family. So right now, that's how the authoritarian figures hold the position of dictating what's right and wrong. If you do things our way, if you do things this correct way, that means you're doing things God's way. And if you do things God's way, you get his blessings, you get eternal life, you get heaven. If you don't, you are cut off or you are put into a lower kingdom. So in Mormonism, that cur the current pattern is to use spiritual threats to hold their position of what's right and wrong. And they can also use um, some real applicable like daily life threats as well, such as you know not being able to give a child blessings or give them the priesthood, not being able to attend someone's wedding, so I've talked to many people who've spent periods of their lives, sometimes long periods, fearing these threats and the threat that maybe they wouldn't make it into the celestial kingdom. And maybe they would spend eternity without the consistent presence of those they loved while other people were getting to enjoy that. So, you know, this can look pretty insidi insidious from the outside. And it is in regards to people's personal growth and development. You know, for a child or an adolescent to believe that they're going to be cut off through eternity. You know, this, this does things to people's ability to grow and develop. It becomes very stunting. Shame is a very stunting emotion when it's not processed cleanly and quickly and moved through and seen for what it is. So, you know, while this can look really insidious from the outside, it's also very much the natural process and response in regards to the cycle of authoritarian power. So, if the follower stays in compliance with the wishes of the authoritarian figure, then the relationship can look quite good. The relationship can look like one that is caring and loving and comforting. However, the moment that either the spouse or the friend or the employee or the follower start to wonder or question again, the perpetrator or the authoritarian figure will again either explicitly or more subtly do what is needed to squash the victim's efforts to explore too deeply into the reality of what's happening. And this can happen again with so many kinds of situations and so many kinds of relationships, but the power dynamic under the surface, the pattern is the same and it's very similar and that's what's extremely fascinating. Um, because this is usually done outside the conscious awareness of either the victim or the perpetrator. In these situations, the perpetrator or the authoritarian figure truly does believe it's justifications for why it's squashing the victim's efforts to empower themselves. And this can make it very confusing for the victim. And it really does take some logical looking at the facts um, or quote the red flags to see the truth of what's happening. Okay, so let's talk specifically about the LDS handbook policy change. 
Um, when I first learned about the policy decision, I didn't believe it. So my roommate was the first one who told me about it. She came upstairs. I was in the kitchen cooking. And she said, did you hear about the new policy in the LDS church? And I said, no, uh -uh, what's going on? And she reads the headline of, actually, I think she started reading a blip of the policy itself. And I remember listening to her and I was like, what, what is she talking about? And I looked up and I said, that doesn't seem right. What are your sources? And she said, oh, it was this news station or that news station. So I walked over, I looked at her phone and I just remember scrunching up my eyes and just being confused. Like, this is weird because I remember thinking, there's no way they would do that. That's just, that's just too extreme. And, you know, some people, some people kind of laugh at that response because it's like extreme question mark. What this is what the LDS church has always been saying all along. And that's true. Okay. But from a perspective of a power dynamic in an authoritarian relationship to come out so explicitly with a policy that's outlined in that way, when they don't have that kind of explicit policies in effect for other quote sins was fascinating to me. So I just kind of thought, you know, gosh, after everything that's been happening lately in the news and with gay marriage, I feel surprised by this reaction and the timing of it. And again, when we look at how these processes work, it's not incredibly surprising. But it was kind of an interesting move, I think, that the LDS Church made. And I know that a lot of others felt similar, both, you know, TBMs, both, both believing Mormons, as well as more liberal Mormons and non-believing Mormons post-Mormons, ex-Mormons, and even people who'd never, who've never been Mormon, you know, the initial response of so many was, hmm, like, that doesn't sound right. What's the source? I mean, I remember talking to a friend the following day who's a true believing Mormon, and it came up, and I said, have you heard about the new policy? And she said, yeah, like, what is it? And I stated it to her, and she said, no, like, I don't think that's right. I think, I think the news stations have something wrong. And so, you know, my response, the response I got from people initially was one of like unbelief or denial or confusion, right? So that wasn't the, the, the uh, response of everyone, but I was surprised how many people didn't believe it at first, including myself. And so what became interesting was how people dealt with that initial discomfort. In regards to Mormonism and perspectives on homosexuality, what we've begun to see is a shift from members simply believing the leader's perspectives that homosexuality is wrong, that um, it's something that can be prayed away, it's something that can be changed. You know, we're starting to see that members are no longer believing this, and leaders are adjusting somewhat on this as well. But it's causing members to ask more questions, and they're not going to the church for the answers because the church isn't coming out with many answers here. So this was one of the first places that I personally began to empower myself in terms of being in an authoritarian relationship with the church. And I wasn't doing it consciously. It just happened when I felt a great deal of pain and confusion in my conversation with gay and lesbian clients. So I was watching people who were trying to change or suppress their sexual desires due to same gender orientation really suffer. And, you know, I was even going to trainings and learning a little bit about reparative therapy. I was learning about ways that homosexuality could be connected to parenting, could be connected to social and environmental factors in regards to relationships and social structures. So I was going through this process and, and believing what I was being 
told through these outlets, but then I was going into the therapy room and I was trying these things and it wasn't working. And so when I started to work with gay and lesbian clients in the same way I was working with people with other, quote, struggles, and I was helping them release the shame, and I was um, just beginning to question and explore their experience without any bias of, you know, what was, quote, right or wrong, that was when I began to see people beginning to break out of their suffering and moving into more calmness or peace. Um, And when I would do this without bias of right or wrong, and I at the time still was confused. I was like, I don't, I don't know what's really going on here. I I still believed the uh, leader's perspectives, but I also was using my therapy training of sitting with someone in their experience while releasing my own perspectives so that I could better understand what they were going through. And it was like, as I was doing that with them and they were getting more clear about what felt true and right for them, you know, that's where I saw people moving into a space where, you know, as they aligned themselves with their same gender desires and released the shame of the old perspectives, they were actually experiencing more freedom to live life. They were feeling less suicidal, less depressed. And that's what was working in regards to these people actually moving on and having healthier relationships and healthier lives. And so it wasn't a conscious empowerment I was doing on myself at the time, but that was one of the first places that began to empower me in terms of seeing that something's going on here in regards to my relationship with the church and me turning to the church for my answers about big questions in life. So this experience got me questioning the LDS Church's perspectives on homosexuality. And what I'd been taught about the misery of, quote, living in sin was not what I was seeing in reality. And it often takes pain or discomfort for someone in an authoritarian power dynamic to begin to empower themselves. And most often it's the follower or whom we would call the victim of the power dynamic that will first start to empower themselves. Though there are times that it is the authoritarian figure that feels enough pain to start looking at the truth of the dynamic. So even though the authoritarian figure from the outside looks like they have it all because they have, you know, quote, the power, when you're in the authoritarian position, what you find is you don't necessarily have what you want. You know, once I began working through where I was a victim in these relationships, I could also start to see um, relationships where I used or took a more authoritarian stance or tried to manipulate or control someone into liking me the way I wanted them to like me or following me, doing things the way I wanted to do them. And once I started to look at these relationships as well, what I was often seeing is they weren't satisfying in the deep way I wanted my relationships to be. You know, so this would be true in a situation where someone has, quote, everything. They may even have things such as fame, high resources, popularity, but they still feel empty or unhappy. And they may decide to break out of this unsatisfying void by looking more closely at what they want in regards to a relationship and seeing that controlling others with their fame, with their resources, with their popularity, with their money, with their, quote, education power, you know, isn't getting them what they really want. So while we tend to call the follower the victim, I often use that, and I, you know, I'm even using that term in this episode, The reality is that both the leader and the follower are victims in an authoritarian cycle. Both are trying to get what they want by playing out the patterns, but neither ultimately gets what they want in regards to deeper longings for authentic connection and the experience of personal power. So you may be wondering as you're listening, 
what would the victim be trying to get by continuing to play out their part in an authoritarian cycle? And some examples include feeling safe, not having to face feelings of uncertainty or unknowns. So for example, if I just follow what the LDS Church says and I don't ask questions, then I'll get to have a safe life. I'll get to be at peace. I won't have the misery. I won't be cheated on by my spouse. I mean, that was a big one, I believe, for a lot of years, right? If I'm Mormon and I get married to a Mormon man, I don't have to worry about infidelity. And some of you listening may be laughing. I don't know. I got into the therapy room and I learned that that wasn't true, right? Or if I'm Mormon and I follow the rules, then I'll feel peace and happiness. But then we do that, it's not working, or I go into the therapy room and it's not working for a lot of other people, right? So these things start to get get us asking questions. But, you know, these are the hooks that can keep us playing out our part in an authoritarian cycle when we're playing out the victim aspect of it, is, you know, feeling safe, not having to face feelings of uncertainty, getting some of the resources the authority figure has. So it's why authoritarian parent-child relationships can sometimes go on and on, last whole lifetimes, because the authoritarian figure has money or they have status to offer the child. They may offer the child attention, um, what looks like love, acceptance. One of the other things the victim can get is they can stay connected to the community of other followers of the authoritarian figure. The feeling of being connected to someone who has all the, quote, answers, even who has the answers of the highest God, right? Who wants to leave a space where they have that? So while on the surface, what's going on is a contest of opinions regarding homosexuality, what's going on under the surface is a challenge to this authoritarian dynamic that's at play. So when it gets to this place in, re- in relationships in general, a couple of things can happen. One, the authority figure acknowledges their lack of authority and works out the struggle of difference as an equal with their follower or followers or quote the victim. So the authority figure themselves, the authoritarian figure themselves might be the one to come to the awareness first and see that, wow, I'm, I'm not necessarily morally right here. And I don't necessarily have any more answers than anyone else. And so I'm going to come down to an equal playing level and we're all going to have this discussion together. So that's one of the things that can happen. That is more rare. When someone has what they perceive as power, it's really, really scary to see where we really don't have the power that we deeply want because it looks so real from the outside and all of culture is telling us we have what we want, right? We have the status, we have the money. And so it's really, really hard to question ourselves when we're in the authoritarian position, but it does happen sometimes. Secondly, the authoritarian figure finds a way to adjust to the changing tides while still maintaining their authority. If this is possible, it's often the path of choice when changes are happening because it allows for the reality of the change, which they can no longer maybe resist, Um, but it still helps them maintain their position as the authoritarian figure, so the power dynamic can continue on. So we saw this happen in regards to the LDS Church's policy changes with polygamy and with blacks in the priesthood. So the authoritarian figure here never admitted to their lack of knowledge or authority on the topic. Rather, they spoke as if they had always been doing what God wanted them to do, and now it was time for a change. Or perhaps someone had made a mistake, but ultimately ultimately that person, in this case uh, the prophet, is still to be viewed as an authority because they still know more than you and they still talk to God, which you don't, at least not for the whole world. So 
that's the second thing that can happen. The third thing that can happen when, when the authoritarian figure faces dissenting opinions is they can tighten the grip on their reign of authority in an attempt to block the person or people from the empowerment process that they're going through. So we see this happen a lot in domestic abuse situations. It's one of the reasons why therapy can actually be dangerous for people who are in a domestic abuse situation. Because sometimes if a spouse is beginning to empower themselves enough to see what's really happening, the abuser will lash out more extreme than usual. So becoming empowered can be dangerous for the victim. And sometimes victims are unaware of this and they go about this process of beginning to move into empowerment naively, not realizing that the abuser will sometimes take this third route and lash out in an attempt to try to keep from losing what they believe is their power. So while this is a risk that may ultimately drive the abused spouse out of the relationship for good, the abuser may subconsciously feel that the risk is worth it for the possibility of maintaining their authoritarian position. And this can happen in domestic violence with physical abuse, but it can also happen in any authoritarian abusive situation where um, emotional abuse is happening, spiritual abuse is happening, verbal abuse is happening. In these situations, the authoritarian figure um, or the perpetrator or the abuser, they won't usually think about it in these terms. They'll usually have a variety of superficial reasons for you know, taking this third route and for lashing out in more extreme ways. Um, and this is what I really see the LDS Church doing. So it looks to me like they're taking this third path, even though the stricter policies will drive some people out, which it already has. But it also has the potential to strengthen the authoritarian bond of those who still want to engage in a relationship with the LDS Church on some level. And because the reality is that it takes both sides of this dynamic to keep the pattern going. So when an authoritarian figure attempts to block a victim's move at empowering themselves, a couple different things can happen. Either the victim will get back in line, believing that they were the one that was, you know, quote, wrong, or that their doubts and questions were the problem, because the authoritarian figure really does know what's best. Or the victim may continue to question, experiencing an elevated cognitive dissonance and confusion following this ext more extreme you know, lash out or this more extreme move. And if this cognitive dissonance is too intense, there is a chance that the victim will backtrack, stuffing down their doubts and questions in an attempt to find some sense of order to their confusion. And again, this can actually strengthen the authoritarian bond because it becomes a coping mechanism to the victim's cognitive dissonance. And sometimes the way that they deal with that is by just stuffing down their own authentic voice deeper and deeper inside of them. So, you know, lastly, the victim may use the experience as evidence that on some level they are part of an authoritarian relationship. And again, they may not think of it in these words or they may not have these terms, but they'll sort of have a knowing rise that, wait a minute, something's not right here. And they might either begin to rebel or they may take an activist approach or they may renegotiate their involvement with the authoritarian figure or they may leave the relationship altogether. So, you know, as much as I've had both my agreements and my disagreements with the LDS Church, and as much as I've taken both idealistic and cynical approaches to the LDS Church, I was surprised to feel like something had fundamentally changed the morning I woke up after this policy was leaked. So I didn't necessarily feel a lot of emotion right away, 
But I did feel this strange sense, like like when someone has, has died, like when there's a fundamental shift in the fabric of my own experience of day-to-day living. So like something that was once a certain way is was no longer that way. And this experience of feeling a death may have just been another part of my own personal process. Um, but it was like the LDS Church had come out and had shown more about themselves. And even though on some level I've been aware and becoming more aware that I was in this authoritarian relationship, on some level I also am still coming to grips and coming to reality that I spent a lot of years in this power dynamic. And this policy was, in a way, simply another fact about who they see themselves to be in terms of their authority. So in a way, they showed more of their cards. And it became another visible action that showed the truth about their position in this authoritarian power dynamic. So for those of us with a relationship to the church, the LDS church, whether we're in it or out of it, you know, maybe still connected because of family or friends, you know, it also showed us more about ourselves. So when an authoritarian figure shows their hand, the follower or the victim gets a mirror to better see themselves. The follower or the victim gets to see what they've been living within. Maybe not with awareness, right? Because the authoritarian figure has maybe kept some of their extremism under the surface or kind of hidden or down below. But then when the follower starts to empower themselves and this comes out of the authoritarian figure, it's kind of a reality hit. And it can be overwhelming and it can be quite painful and it can be confusing as well. Because again, we not only see the authoritarian figure more clearly for who they are, but we see ourselves as someone who's gone along with this game you know, and we see ourselves as this this follower, and it, it's it's something to be processed. So, John Bradshaw wrote a book called Creating Love, and he talks about how we can work out more mature levels of intimacy by coming out of both our idealized version of our caregivers as well as our degraded or our cynical version of our caregivers. He talks about how neither the ideal or the cynical is the truth. And to better understand ourselves, we must better understand the reality of those who taught us, who modeled to us, and who raised us. So his suggestion for working ourselves out of these two polarities, idealism and cynicism, and into reality is to gather as many facts as possible so that we can really understand the dynamics that are at play. And so again, this is where this policy for as awful and hurtful and icky as it was for so many of us, it also gives us more information. And again, that's not an easy thing to experience as more information, but it is more information. So as you continue to explore your own experience with the LDS Church in terms of this policy, continue to pay attention to facts, whatever your feelings may be. So, you know, was the LDS Church right or wrong in creating this policy? I'd say for them, I have no idea. I only know what I feel I need and want in regards to my relationships at this point. And so guess what? That's what you get to decide for you. Okay, so there's no right or wrong in terms of what relationship the LDS Church should have with their members. You know, that's up to them. There's also no right or wrong in what types of relationships you should have in your life. That That's up to you. So there's only greater awareness and learning as we go so that we can get more and more clear 
on what kinds of relationships we really want. So, you know, what is the difference between an authoritarian power dynamic and a healthy relationship when someone actually maybe is wiser or possibly more informed or in possession of more resources? My vision would be that a wiser or more informed figure would share their ideas, their knowledge, and their information, and they would also acknowledge it as just that. They would be open to the possibility that some of what they know may or may not be as correct as they assume it is, even if it was brought to them through a vision, a dream, a feeling, or a spiritual experience. So again, this is one thing I've I've really done a lot of work with clients on. It's one thing I've done, done a lot of work with myself on. Just because I have experienced something as very true to me, even if it's come through what's felt like a very spiritual experience, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true or reality for everyone. It may be, but it may not be. We only have our own knowings. We only have the research we've done. We only have the experiences we've had. You know, that's all we've got. Someone in this situation who truly maybe does have more information, more knowing, more experience, who is but wiser, you know, they would make choices simply because it's the best they know at, at this point. Um, they would be willing to admit their wrongs. They would be willing to apologize. They would not assume that what is best for them is best for everyone. They would set their boundaries, but they would do so without shaming or assuming that the other is wrong. Rather, they would make their decisions and choices out of their own right to choose their own life for themselves. And they would allow others to choose their own lives for themselves. Really, truly believing that just because we're different in the way we're choosing this doesn't mean one is right or wrong. We're just making our choices out of our own experiences and what we want. So, since I've just spoken a lot of my own learnings, opinions, and thoughts today, I want to acknowledge that they really are just that. If anything you heard today was helpful, great. Take that with you. If anything you heard today wasn't helpful or felt harmful, acknowledge that and take and leave and adjust whatever you need to take and leave and adjust. So I may be correct on what's going on with some of these power dynamics. I may be incorrect. Um, but I really do I really do believe that we're all doing our best. And I may even be wrong about that. But I do believe we're doing our best even if we're screwing up big time. So keep doing your best. Keep learning. Keep growing. Keep setting the boundaries that move you closer to the kind of life you want for you. And give the LDS Church the space to do the same thing for themselves, whatever that means about your relationship. If that means you need to take on an activist role, take on an activist role. If you need to take on a rebellious role, take on a rebellious role. If you need to just keep quiet and go to sacrament because you don't want to lose your family, do that. And what you need to do today might be different than what you feel like you need to do tomorrow or next week or next year. So this stuff is very changeable. It's sort of always evolving and changing. And, you know, knowing that you have the right to be wherever you are in regards to your relationship with the LDS Church as you're dealing with this policy shift. And if you feel like you need to leave the church or renegotiate your relationship with it in a very strong, you know, empowered way, you have the right to do that as well. So there's a whole spectrum of things that could be right for you. And above all, above what I have done in my life, above what others have done in theirs, above what I think's best, above what anyone else thinks best, you get the choice to decide what's best for you right now. And then you get to learn from that experience. So thanks for joining us on another episode of Ask an Ex-Mormon Therapist. And keep the questions coming in. I'm sending love and trusting that you have the power to create the life you want. Until next time.